Hey everyone, my guest today is Katrina Moore, a federal wildland firefighter for the U.S. Forest Service based out of Idaho. In this episode, we discuss the Canadian wildfires that have been raging all across the East Coast lately, as well as who exactly are wildland firefighters and what does it take to become one? We also discuss how this particular career path differs from the more traditional, well-known, structural firefighters, as they're known. And we also go into the fundamentals of wildfires themselves. How do they start? How do they spread? And how do the different personnel on these firefighter teams coordinate with one another to mitigate and contain the spread? I'm John Schwenk, and this is the Adventures Less Traveled podcast. So, yeah, let's just let's just jump right in. So what exactly is going on with these Canadian wildfires? I'm seeing all these photos and videos of crazy, crazy smoke, orange skies, you know, lighting up the New York City skyline. Um, that's close to my hometown. So what, what exactly is going on? So without being there fighting the fires, from what I understand is a lot of it is boreal forest in Canada. So they're doing kind of tactics we associate more with Alaska. So that means more not that means more uh, management, wildland fire management, and not full suppression. So they're not sending people out there trying to stop the fire where it's at. They're trying to keep it away from infrastructure as best they can, and they're trying to corral it into areas where then they can catch it along roads, or then they're also setting fires. I know I've been seeing a ton of media of this uh, helicopter with a torch on it, and people are freaking out, but that's a very normal prescribed fire tool that we use So they're setting back burns and trying to just catch it where it's easier and then it's roads, places they can patrol. And that's from what I understand. Without being there and seeing what's going on, that's just kind of what I'm getting, talking to friends who are going up there on rolls and just kind of their overall management um, strategy. So very much not suppression, a lot of kind of catching it in easy places and corralling it away from things they don't want to burn. And I know that's not always successful. I know there's homes that are burning, but... That's kind of the gist of what I'm understanding is happening up there. Okay, sweet. Now, is this fire alarming to you? Uh, Like, is it abnormal or is this just something just like any old wildfire that happens, you know, every year? Um, You you just never know with all these clickbaity, you know, headlines that you see all plastered all over social media. So I figure the best person to ask is someone who's in the thick of it day in, day out. Yeah. And I would say that every single year, at least in the past five years, some region or some state has broken their, I don't know, broken totals for acres burned and just fires that have started. So I would say it's probably strange because we don't really talk about Canada that much. And I bet it's really weird for people on the East Coast to be getting this smoke where people in California, I've seen like a lot of funny kind of me memes where they're like, oh, first time in the smoke. Like it's this is normal (laughs) life for a lot of places in Oregon, California, uh, Idaho, for sure, where I live and just the Rocky Mountain West. Like this is their normal summertime is just like not being able to exercise outside and not be able to see past the end of their street sometimes. That's just like very normal here. So I'd say it seems abnormal just um, for conditions people are experiencing on the East Coast, especially to have fires in New Jersey and that kind of situation is is not the norm, especially this time of year. Usually right now the South um, West, like or is it or bleh. Arizona and New Mexico are popping a lot of huge fires. I know last year, because they had um, the largest fire in New Mexican history, that um, 
was burning at this time. So they're not getting the fires now, but Canada is. So I feel like everywhere, um, every summer, there's going to be some place that's just on fire for a very long time. A lot of these fires aren't going to be put out until winter. So um, I wouldn't say it's abnormal. It's just maybe abnormal that Canada is experiencing this. And we in the United States are really not having a very busy start to our fire season. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. In um, 2019, I did a bike trip through Alaska and it, and in 2019, the wildfire, I think it was in Alberta or something, but it's so funny when you're riding through it and it's just like, it smells like one giant campfire, which just for anyone who isn't on the East coast getting pummeled in smoke right now. But, um, so you, you mentioned, um, a little bit of how they're trying to, to contain it, like their, or or their, or their general strategy. I guess we should kind of go into the fundamentals a little bit, but so do they tend to borrow firefighter? Like, is it something that like the, the, the people on the East side of Canada, they can maintain it or do they, do they typically borrow firefighters from other parts of the country or the, or the like North America in general? Like, would you ever be called in? Possibly, yes, or... it is possible. Um, a lot of shot crews and hot shot crews in our region have been going up to support the suppression efforts in Canada, and a lot of that is just because we're slow down here. So, if we have resources sure. to spare, absolutely. There's historical precedents where people from my forest even have gone to Australia in the winter when they've had really epic fire seasons. There's firefighters from New Zealand and South Africa right now in Canada. So really anywhere where they're not having a busy fire season, they're just borrowing people who wouldn't otherwise be fighting fires. So I'd say that's pretty common internationally to have firefighting crews um, go different. uh, Yeah, absolutely go to different countries because it is common for us even to go different regions. So it's not like where I live in Idaho, I just fight fires in Idaho. We can be available nationally sometimes and then... Um, right now we actually, one of our engines is in Florida of all places. So we traveled quite far distances, even within the U S to, to help out, um, other places that just need a little more, need more resources and need some more help. Sure. That's awesome. So you mentioned a couple niche terms. Um, you said you mentioned two of which I believe were, uh, hot shots and engines. So I'm assuming most of my viewers have no idea what any of the terminology is. So maybe, we could start with like the 10,000 foot view, just break down okay. what are the main functions of a wildland fire department? Like the, okay. I, on your blog. So you have a blog. I should also mention this. You have a, it's the five foot firefighter.com. You have a blog and we'll go into this later, but there, on one of your articles, you say how typically you start on an engine or hand crew, and then you work your way into either like smoke jumpers, repellers, hot shots, hell attack. So maybe, yeah, just give like a general kind of high level overview of how how it, it functions. Okay. So a very high-level overview is that there's many ways to be a wildland firefighter. So like you just mentioned, a lot of people start out on engines just because there's tons of engines. A lot of forests will have two to six just in their forest just because they're a very useful tool. Everyone needs water to put out fires. So they're one of the most plentiful resources. So just by default, many people start on that. It's kind of entry level getting into it. And then there's also fuels crews, which primarily deal with hazard fuels mitigation. And then they can become fire suppression modules, which I talked about. So that's like going and doing what we call initial attack fires. So that's when a fire starts. They're called. They go to the fire, try and put it out if that's what we're trying to do and not actually manage it. So there's different types of hand crews. There's IA hand crews, like I mentioned. And then there's also hotshot crews. 
So those are more, people like to say they're elite, like they're like the varsity and <laughs> their crews are like JV. But it's it's true in a lot of ways just because they have to maintain more qualifications. So a hotshot crew, there is minimums as far as like positions that they have to fill and just a higher level of experience that they have. So absolutely, they're the ones on the front lines doing lots and lots of the hard work. And then that's just kind of on the ground resources. You have all sorts of aviation. So you can be a helitac crew member. So that's where they would fly to a fire and land, and then they would get out and work either with bucket work or be a squad, which is just a smaller amount of firefighters. And then you can be a repeller. So they take it a step further and they throw some ropes out of the helicopter (laughs) about 200 feet up and they'll slide down, they'll repel down, and then they are inserted to fires that way. And then smoke jumpers, they're a whole class above, so they'll fly in a plane and then they parachute out into fires that are in more accessible locations or just fires. They're also pretty high level as far as their qualifications. So if they need people quick, they're a really great way to just set up an org chart, which just means like they have um, incident commanders and just all sorts of other higher level qualifications that they can just get to a fire like really fast. So they excel for that. And then also wilderness fires are hard to get to locations. And that's not even counting the pilots. So then there's people who fly the planes and fly the helicopters and air attack who are like the orchestrators and coordinate all of those people and air tankers who work on the ground filling up all the um, single engine air tankers, which are smaller planes who dump retardant all the way up to what we call VLATs, very creatively named, very large air tankers (laughs) who drop, who are like C-130s that they show on the news a lot where it's just a giant like passenger plane flying over and dumping <laughs> thousands of <laughs> gallons of retardant. Um, and then just a few more I'll mention just because it, we can get in the weeds fast, but dispatchers, we have to talk to people on the radio. So they're sure, a huge yeah. part of like what keeps us rolling. I don't want to discount them and all their hard work that they do. They work more hours than we do sometimes <laughs> in the middle of the night. And then just there's fuels crews, like I mentioned. So they're also more on the spring and fall and off season time of just planning prescribed burns and implementing those and making sure that we have good buffers in the forest in places that we can do that. So that's kind of the main ones that I can think of right now. But like I said, there's so many ways you can be a wildland firefighter. And that's yeah. not even counting federal, state, oh, private. Sure. Yeah, like yeah. There's all sorts of different um, people who apply um, employ firefighters. So, so then in your group specific, cause you are a, I don't want to butcher the term, but is it a, a squad boss? Is that the term? Is that your official so, like, title? It's not my official title, but I can function that way. And that's where it's okay. so easy to like get confused. Cause a lot yeah, of it's yeah. military esque and there's all sorts of hierarchies, but yes, I have a qualification where I can be a squad boss. So that means I can be in charge of like five to seven-ish people who I then direct to do something. And that can be on a crew, under a crew boss, and that kind of function. So crews are generally 20 people. Um, And then modules are definitely like 10-ish people. So that's just kind of ways to delineate how many people are coming to your fire. It's like an easier way to think about it. And then my current current position, I am the assistant on a Type 4 engine, which is like a large Seadale type semi chassis with 800 gallons of water, like a big off-road kind of vehicle. So that's okay. my current position. So, so where does your team fit in, in all of the groups we were just discussing? Like where does your team fit in the kind of the bigger picture? Like which one of those categories, I guess? We're an engine. So we like okay. to think of ourselves as the water delivery specialists. So we nice. try to go find the water, bring water, and then we'll set up hoses and pumps and just to be able to deliver water on the ground that so it doesn't have to come from aviation. Okay. Now, I think most people who are not in it 
would want they see this massive fire on the TV. Massive fire. Miles and miles mm-hmm. of fire. How exactly do you guys go in with like not that much water or not that much retardant or whatever it is that you need? And how do you kind of fight the fire? Because it's I'm assuming it's a completely different dynamic than I don't know what the term is, civilian where you go into houses burning houses and things. Yes. Like that. So how Yeah, we like to joke. I was also a volunteer structure fire for six years my where I worked in Colorado and we like to joke like they're the indoor firefighters, they deal with the indoor stuff, the <laughs> firefighters, and we're the outdoor firefighters. We yeah. deal with the outside. <laughs> so it's it's hard because I do feel like a lot of the fires on the news that you see that are mega fires that are like gobbling up everything in their paths. It's really hard to fight those fires because it's like uh, trying to jump in front of a hurricane or a tidal wave. <laughs> You're not going to stop it. It's going to do what it wants, especially if it's being backed by uh, 60 to even 100 mile an hour winds. Like we've seen that on fires in the past oh, few sure. years. And so that's really hard. So a lot of that is being strategic about what we call a big box. So like I was mentioning with the fires in Canada, you have to find something that's indirect so it's far in front of the fire or to the side of the fire and try and make a barrier, which is either with dozer line or hand line, and then try and burn off of that so then the fires come together. So that's really the best way to fight these kind of really out of control fires. And of course, they have aviation and they drop retardant and like as ways of slowing it down. But I think a big misconception that the public has is that, oh, fires, uh, <laughs> planes and helicopters can drop retardant or water on these fires and that's not true because it's it's like spitting into (laughs) like a bonfire it's just not really doing anything (laughs) it's not going to accomplish much and they can't fly above certain wind speeds so they're they're just grounded in those kind of winds for sure so yeah i would say a lot of fighting really large fires is just trying to get out in front of it and doing indirect things and then coming behind and trying to keep what you have and trying to like mop that up. We call it where you apply water and you dig line around it directly next to the fire so that you have black, um, we call it, which is what's already been burned. So there's kind of a combination of direct attack where you're going behind and just like putting in the line right next to it. So it can't burn anything more. And then going ahead where it's too dangerous to be right next to the fire and just trying to make a box, um, to contain it and corral it into that box. So Sometimes you're not successful and it'll jump over that box and you have to redo all the things that you did. But that's those are the most common tactics we use for really large um, kind of wind driven out of control fires. Got it. Okay. And so is the on a fundamental level is the idea that like if you if you go camping or whatever and you see like you're in a in a field of grass and a fire could there's a lot of things to feed that fire. Whereas if you try to start a fire on like a pile of ashes there's not much there to feed it is that kind of the idea yes. or okay yeah okay. totally so if it's already burned then it can't burn again and that right, that's right, right. um yeah so if it totally consumes those fuels then you know it's not gonna go back through there yeah so that's also a huge part of why we then light fires in front is just we have to remove that fuel in some way and unfortunately right. like for i know people don't like to see it but that's just that's what you have to do to try and stop it is fight fire with fire Okay, sweet. So I guess kind of building off of that, what is the typical like life cycle, so to speak, of a of a wildfire? Like how is it is it really as simple as like up someone just like didn't put their fire out or smoked a cigarette or like what is what kind of what is the start? Like how does it I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious how it expands. We just talked about it. But then how does it ultimately like die out? Just the same way that a campfire would die out? Like it just 
there's no there's nothing left for it to burn and eventually it's just it's gone or yeah so there's kind of two parts to that um so definitely nine out of ten this is like pretty common statistics i guess nine out of ten fires start by human caused so that's Mm -hmm. That's a lot of different ways. It can be unattended campfires. That's a big one just because those are already like kind of deeper in the woods, especially like hunters starting fires is an example. These are just kind of fires I've seen, I guess, in my career. Another one is people dragging chains on the highway. So if you have a trailer and your chains are too low, that can start a lot of fires. Just sparks. Trains can start fires. So even though it's not something deliberate necessarily, it's not arson. Like that's obviously a category two (laughs) of people going down the woods and starting (laughs) fires or on the edge of cities. But a lot of it's just kind of accidents or farm equipment. So I was on a fire where someone was mowing tall grass and their mower hit a rock and it was like pretty dry. So then it started a fire from that and it was windy. So there's usually has to be combinations too of like, yeah, you can have sparks, but if the grass on the edge of the highway is mowed down or if it's just rained, it's not going to start a fire. But if it's super windy and super dry, then those fires get out of control really quickly, especially in grass, just because it's a quick moving fuel and it can consume really fast. Um, and then people shooting guns. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I was on another <laughs> fire where people are shooting Tannerite, which is basically an explosive. We've all heard the gender reveal party where people oh, start fires or people shooting at metal targets. And like, that's another <laughs> common way. Or even just parking on dry grass with mufflers. Like, there's so many ways people can start a fire that I think they're unaware of. And then the other one out of ten is generally is lightning. That's, like, the other very common way that fires get started. So, like I talked about, um, the reason a lot of them can and do get out of control, there's a huge weather and or drought or just, like, fuel dryness component. Because without those things, then the fire would not get as large or out of control as quickly. Um, Because usually if people can respond quick enough and there's not a wind component then you can kind of wrap it pretty quick and it doesn't turn into like a huge fire um and then the second part of that of how they go out is definitely a combination also of weather so if there's moderating weather and then the fire kind of slows down we can kind of catch up to it a little bit and like i said we'll come behind it and just also try and funnel it into barriers where it can't jump over like highways generally or like rock i don't know just like places where it's not going to burn into or already and if the weather shifts and then or sorry if the wind shifts and then it comes back and tries to burn what it already burnt then there's no fuel there so there's definitely ways weather can help or hurt fire suppression efforts and then just tons of hard work just tons of people on the ground putting in the work to make sure the edges are secure and mopping it up and making sure it's cold so it's definitely a combination of both weather can help us but there's definitely some fires that start and they're not going to go out until the winter when they're covered in a lot of snow and a lot of rain okay cool good to know um (laughs) now uh when it's not when there's not an active raging fire that you have to attend to a lot of what you do which also kind of blows people away if they're, if they're not aware, are these prescribed burns. So that's I'm guessing that's essentially what you're saying, just not when there's an active fire. Like you do kind of the sim, a similar uh, tactic where you want to burn out like some sort of perimeter where it might be a high-risk area or something. Or like how do you go about the prescribed burns? Like what is like tactically, I guess? So tactically, I guess places I've worked, there's been two different types. So there is one where you're truly trying to do what we call like punching a hole or a fuel break where you're trying to eliminate all fuel in that area. So that's a very hot burn. You're really killing a ton of trees and a ton of brush and just making that um, just 
basically like a break in the forest where then people can come in and be able to catch it because there's space to do so and there's not just continuous forest. And a lot of that is also honestly for elk habitat or turkey habitat. A lot of places I've worked, um, our prescribed burns are funded in part by groups that are into hunting because it does clear out the brush and make hunting like more feasible and it provides wildlife corridors. So that's a part of it I think people don't understand either that we're not just out there trying to like light fires for fun. <laughs> like it's very beneficial to the landscape right, right, right. and, and yeah. it helps the trees and certain trees need fire to stand replace. And that's just part of their life cycle. Um, so that's common too. And then there's another type of prescribed burning where we're trying to make space for old growth trees. So we're trying to clear out new trees that are coming up under them and just trying to promote kind of like a more normal tree spacing too. So that's where we're coming in and doing burns year after year to try and just keep that space for those large trees. And so that's more of a mosaic burn, we call it. So you're not necessarily trying to make like a straight line of um, completely no fuel. You're just kind of targeting what you can to try and like help certain species. So I think a lot of people when they hear prescribed burn, they hear like, oh, we're burning it to the ground and it's going to be a black moonscape. <laughs> and that's just not, that's just not true. That's just not right. what's happening. And then I've definitely been on fires where we um, have done fuel breaks for years and years and years. And then that was an area they caught the fire in. So they're definitely very successful. And especially outside of towns, that's like very common to be able to implement those prescribed burns just to provide a buffer in the wildland urban interface for sure. Yeah, sure. Now, now what, um, in, in the course of a year, what percentage or proportion would you say your time is spent in the preventative side, like everything you were just mentioning or, and, and opposed to actively reacting to fires or I guess the better way is like how, what proportion of the year, how, how active is the peak fire season that you would have to like respond to? No, it's a good question. And I've been in fire for 12 years now. And I would say when I started out, it was very much like six months on six months off or even less like that was the fire season. But now it's becoming way more of a fire year. So even here in Idaho, I work nine months out of the year. And that's a lot of that is implementing prescribed burns, even though we have a ton of snow in the winter and going other places to help them. So I this year I went to Arkansas for almost a month just to learn from them how they prescribe burn down there and just to kind of like help out and just get some different experience. But here on our forest, as soon as the snow comes off, um, we can start pile burning and or just implementing those mosaic burns that I talked about. So there's still snow in the drainages and we're out burning. So it doesn't mean it has to be completely dry. So definitely in the spring and then getting into the fall, um, we can get into prescribed burn season. But it's hard to quantify because every year is different. We haven't had a very epic fire season here where I've worked in many years where it's burned like thousands or hundreds of thousands of acres or anything. So we've been lucky for that. But um, when it also, this is kind of getting in the weeds, but it also depends on national and um, regional preparedness levels. So that's just quantifying how many fires are going and how many people there are to respond to new incidents who aren't already committed to other fires. So when that kind of stuff happens, then um, we're definitely like in reaction mode, like you were talking about, and we're just waiting for fires and we're staying ready to do that. So um, the other component to that is weather. So we did prescribed burning for about a month and then the weather was on the horizon. We were going to get a ton of rain and then it was going to dry out. So then we stop and then we let the rain basically come in and like, put they don't necessarily always put them out but they 
put them out enough where we're not worried about them escaping. And then people obviously go and check on them and monitor them and all that. And then now that we're in a drying trend, we're obviously not putting any more fire on the ground and we're ready for fires. And we've already had some lightning fires here. So it's starting up slowly. Yeah. And, and I guess also kind of like what you're saying in the beginning, like if, if other places need it, then you can kind of alloc- reallocate resources depending on the demand. Yes. Um, it's definitely a high level chessboard where they're all mixing people around <laughs> and going <laughs> where they yeah. need to go for sure. Sure. Um, so let's kind of get into like you personally. So your, your background or your academic background anyway, is in a fairly unrelated field of magazine journalism. And you've had a couple odds and end jobs here and there before you fully, you know, committed into the the firefighter um, career path. So what was what ultimately inspired you to make that career change? And like, um, yeah, just like how how did that come to be? Yeah, so I definitely I went to school for magazine magazine journalism, like you said. And as soon as I got out, I had an amazing internship. It was unpaid, but still amazing um, at Alpinist Magazine in Jackson, Wyoming. But that was my first desk job I'd ever had. And I wouldn't say it was, <laughs> so it was a really big shock to the system because before that um, I had done a lot of restaurant jobs or my parents um, growing up, my dad owned a flagging company like barricade business. So I was a flagger and I was used to just kind of being outside to do work. So I definitely threw me for a loop when I <laughs> was doing my desk job and having to make ends meet and then just not really really struggling with the idea of, oh, I'm writing about things that I love to write about and I'm being around, I'm around all these amazing people, but I'm not actually outside doing things anymore for work. So that was kind of a weird, like, oh, did I just waste my whole college career doing this thing (laughs) that now I'm not going to use? So I tried to do freelance for a while so I could do it on my own schedule. And I did mostly baking and pastry at that time, just at different places um, around the country. And then I met, I had a friend from college and then also a guy I was dating at the time who were hotshots. And so honestly, the thing that appealed to me most was that um, they were outside and challenging themselves and they had a really amazing schedule where they got to work um, six months in the summer and make a decent amount of money and travel in the winter. Like the guy I was seeing at the time, he basically took the whole winter off and just skied. And that sounded really amazing. (laughs) 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 And just not really knowing what I was trying to do with my life. So they both uh, definitely were instrumental in helping me apply and get into it because USA Jobs is a very confusing um, system if you don't know how to apply. And I applied to probably 50 different places and got two callbacks and then one place hired me. And I feel incredibly lucky that that happened because I really had no idea what I was doing. I had no fire classes. I had no experience at all. And just honestly, I feel like I fell into it. It was just like really, really lucky that someone gave me a chance because now here I am 12 years later, still doing it. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. It's funny how the stars align. I mean, it's almost like going to college for magazine journalism made you realize you didn't want to do that. So that's how you like, it was almost worth it in that sense where like, now, you know, you definitely don't want a desk job, you know? So the the stars aligned in in your case. Um, So yeah. Tell us about this, this website that you had, because you you mentioned how, how complicated the process can be. So um, I will let you explain, but just in general, (laughs) the, the five foot firefighter.com, there's a website where people can go for who are interested in wildland firefighting and they want to um, learn about the application process and so forth. So 
what yeah just give us the pitch what what exactly is it and how did how to come to be yeah, it's definitely that's what well that's what I strive to do is just help people who have never gotten a fire job, never had a fire job, but are very interested and want to get into it, the tools to do that, and just kind of what to expect and just some like minimum requirements just to know if they'd be disqualified off the bat or just like age limits that kind of stuff just to know what they need, and then how to apply is a huge part about it just because it is a very confusing process on USA Jobs. You need to know what to look for and what to apply for to be able to get the get into the federal system for sure. And it truly came to be because, like I mentioned, after I did my first two years of Wildland Fire, I was living in Colorado in a town, and then I got into the volunteer fire department there doing structure fire on on the side. I was just really gung-ho about fire at that time and just loved being part of the community and part of that. But a ton of those people, um, because we also had a lot of um, wildland fires that the department would respond to as far as like in town and people like what we call the wildland urban interface, the WUI. And so a lot of people got kind of a taste of wildland through the structure department and they wanted to apply. So I just found myself writing the same email over and over again with the same links and all this. And part of me was kind of missed writing at that point because I had completely given up on freelance writing at that point. <laughs> it wasn't working out at all. So I thought it would be a fun challenge, fun writing challenge to just have a website and just keep it up there and just provide a link that I could just boop, send emails to people <laughs> yeah, about yeah. instead of trying to have these same conversation over and over again. Right. So it's been, it's definitely grown completely out of proportion to what I thought. Like I love getting emails from people who have either used my site and then didn't reach out to me until after they got a job and just telling me how helpful it was and that it worked and they did get a job. Or kind of, there are some people I coach through processes or like help them with interviews and just kind of like finding out what's right for them. So yeah, it just makes me really happy that people are using it and it's a great tool for them and it's worked for them. So that's, it's really gratifying in that way for sure. Yeah. And, and it has a, a super, super convenient glossary page with all the terms <laughs> that you could yeah. ever possibly wonder. Um, that's helped. Like when I was kind of, you know, trying to prepare for like what I would think to say, I was like, what is a hot shot? Like I, the only hot <laughs> shot I know is the bar down the street. So I'm like, oh, she has a glossary page. It's great. You know? Yeah. Um, it just sets people up for success so they can show up and <laughs> feel like they kind of know what's yeah, 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 what yeah. to say yeah. and what's going on. Get rid of and the how to uh, train. imposter yeah. syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so speaking of training, actually, what, um, how, how do like aside from the application or like getting started, like how do firefighters uh, stay sharp mentally and physically both for wildland and for civil, what do they, what is it called? Like civilian or what's like the non wild, like the house firefighters, what are they called? Oh, structure firefighters. Structure firefighters. Like mm -hmm. how, for, so like in general, like how do the grand umbrella of firefighters, how do they prepare and stay sharp and me mentally and physically, but then also like for your, job like how do they how, what is the extra prep I guess I would say once you're in it and you have your job really training like we do so much training so that's definitely yeah. how we say mentally sharp and just ready to go so you practice things so many times that when it matters and timeliness is of the essence you're ready to go you're you've already done it you already have like an idea of what to go next and how to do the things that we do on a daily basis when there are fires and just how to use all of our equipment so that's a huge part of it 
And then as far as physical, I would say firefighters are extremely lucky in some ways in that we pretty much get paid to work out for part of the day. That's a huge part of how we start our day is like the first hour of the day is we work out. And that's just because we have to maintain such a high level of fitness. It'd be really hard to ask people to put that time in on their time off. So we do it as a crew and it also just builds the team. When you work out with people and like do a really hard run and do a really hard hike and stuff, it just really brings you together. And so it's definitely part of like how we also train because then you can know what people are like when they hike or kind of you just get to know people a little bit better when you've (laughs) done some hard labor with them. (laughs) That can look a lot of running, a lot of hiking with our packs and with weight. And then we do definitely some weight training and like, I don't know, maybe it's an old timey word, but like calisthenics. I'm not like a huge CrossFit person. So (laughs) that's what what I think of it. Lots of body weight exercises and stuff like that. And even on the volunteer department, like that's a huge part of, um, structure fire too, is they, they work out, they need to be sharp and they do tons of training as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I hate to keep beating a dead horse with the difference between the two, but I'm just very, I'm very curious. So with, uh, the structure firefighters, the, the one that the house firefighters, I'll call them, um, <laughs> are those, are the, are the sets of skills that you need for wildland and structure, are they interchangeable or are they very unique to each field? Like if you had to get called to go to a house fire, are you train like are you do you have the necessary skills to do that and vice versa or are they totally separate because i would imagine that structure firefighter has kind of more uncertainty with it like you're going in people might have i don't know gas lines and propane tanks and ammunition and all this kind of stuff that can like you don't know what's around the corner whereas like with wildfires as as you were mentioning like you kind of know you kind of have an idea of how they're going to react and progress and everything so you can work accordingly. But I also feel like it, it maybe it's way more labor intensive on the wildland side because you have to constantly like reiterate all of your dig, your, your the lines that you dig and everything. But this is just my perspective from the outside looking in. So I, I don't know, like, yeah, from, from your perspective, how are they, how do the skills differ? Yeah. You definitely highlighted some things that are like Right on the money. So definitely you cover more ground as a wildland firefighter just by the nature of your outside. You're in more of an open area and you know, after being in it enough, you've, you've kind of have an idea of how trees will burn and just kind of if the weather is a certain way and the wind's a certain way, kind of what to expect. Sometimes things absolutely happen that are beyond people's expectations they haven't seen before, but you have a little bit better idea. But yeah, house fires definitely freaked me out because you don't know what's in people's houses. It could be anything. Like it could be literally anything. <laughs> and there, um, There's a, a story, I guess, a very brief story, but my first house fire, they had a bunch of animal mounts, so taxidermied animals. And my friend literally like pushed me out of the way because someone above me was like pulling the ceiling down to like expose insulation to get to the main fire and rattled it off the wall. And it like came down <laughs> on me like a movie, like this elk mount. Oh my God. Like it's, yeah, it almost Jesus. like hit me in the head. So <laughs> that's terrifying. <laughs> it's, it's really funny in a way, but I was totally fine. But, um, and my partner was looking out for me, but yeah, just crazy stuff like that. We're like, well, I mean, I guess an elk could like jump out of a tree on you, in a wild land, but that's extremely unlikely. So yeah, yeah, people have crazy stuff in their houses, especially <laughs> hazmat. So I think that's a huge yeah, sure. difference is that we might come across some, there's definitely meth labs and just like some plastics and like obviously oh, houses burning in the wilderness, but 
in general, like, yes, um, structured firefighters are trained with SCBAs. That's their breathing apparatus. And they absolutely wear those all the time because they're breathing a lot of carcinogens otherwise and really bad stuff that they don't want to breathe. So that's a huge difference. We don't use SCBAs. Some crews in California do just because they respond to way more car fires. And that's definitely stuff you don't want to breathe. So that's a big difference. But generally where I'm at, we don't carry any of that stuff. It's just not part of our job. So we don't do that. Um, and then just different challenges. I would say, um, wildland firefighters, we need to be way more attuned to the weather and just kind of that aspect of it and different fuels and just kind of how they operate. Whereas, um, structure firefighters need to be able to look at a house fire and kind of predict what it might do based on other things that they've seen and also what the wind's doing with that. So I have great respect for structure fire. Um, just doing it as like an unpaid position. Definitely don't live it the way that <laughs> career firefighters do. And they really do. Yeah. It's pretty epic. Like what their day could involve just because they respond to so many wildly different types of incidents <laughs> like hazmat car accidents. So that's part of it too, is we have medical calls on our crew, but we're definitely not responding as paramedics EMTs to the public. So that's a right. huge, huge part of their job that we definitely don't share right, right. in our, in our job description. So Okay. I don't know. Well, I think those are, yeah, those are the main differences I can think of. Yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah, but yeah. The, the similarities are definitely being able physically and mentally be able to prepare to see some kind of crazy stuff and deal with it and be calm and collected and like lean on your training. And then also a lot of the water handling, um, pumping, like those kind of things, the trucks are very similar to operate. If you are an engineer and you know how to pump water with a truck and no hoses they're different right, right, sizes right. but yeah just knowing kind of fittings and how they all come together is, is a similarity as well okay sweet um and and i guess another thing that i had to look at the glossary on your website for is the uh the role which i guess is uh two essentially two weeks straight where you're working over 16 hours a day so is that um did i get that right is that actually what that is or it, yeah. So a role we call is kind of some people would call it a deployment. That's more military term, but it's when you would go and be on a fire. And so we can work up to 14 days and that doesn't include travel. So like our engine, I mentioned that just drove to Florida. They, they had a 37 hour drive and that doesn't even factor into once they get there, then they work for 14 days straight and then they'll <laughs> drive back. <laughs> so, yeah. And also people can work up to 21 days technically because that it makes more sense. So if you're flown to Alaska, it's way easier to train people kind of in those tactics and keep them there for a while rather than flying people every two weeks instead of every three weeks. So you can work up to 21 days. And then a typical shift is 16 hours max. Definitely have worked longer shifts than that, but that's our day. So we generally right. work 14 to 16 hours on a fire. Okay. It's crazy. Absolutely <laughs> nuts. Um, <laughs> so how do you compartmentalize fear? I'm assuming it can be pretty scary. I'm I'm sure the 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 constant exposure that you've had to it over however many years like that's kind of not really a factor or maybe you realize you can't think about it because if you do like that's going to degrade your performance as a firefighter but how do you like how do you go about that or do you just does it not bother you or is it more um, like an adrenaline thing where you enjoy it like yeah, I think there's two, there's a few parts to that. Definitely starting out, you don't know what you're looking at, so it's way scarier. The first time you see a tree torch and it's close yeah. to you, you get really freaked out. But 
I would say definitely at this time, just being really desensitized to it. So it is funny to be around your firefighters and it kind of makes you remember like how cool it is to like be around some fire behavior that's a little bit more on the extreme side to start with. And that can be kind of fun to see it through their eyes and remember <laughs> like yeah, how, yeah, yeah, yeah. how new and kind of intimidating <laughs> it was. But I think my fears have changed. So definitely starting out, it's not like I was afraid of getting burned over in a fire or like that, but it's more... I've come to realize if you're out in the forest, like trees are the ones that are going to kill you, <laughs> like <laughs> having to cut trees down or branches breaking out. And honestly, like driving his like um, statistically is by far the most dangerous thing we do right. just because you're working long hours and then trying to drive back on these like really rutted dirt roads a lot of the time to get back to a place. So that kind of stuff. So my fears have morphed into um, just taking care of other people. And now that I'm the one making decisions for other people, my fear is always like, am I making the right decisions? Am I taking care of my people in the best way that I possibly can? So yeah. I guess I've become, yeah, I'm more supervisory. So it's, it is more of a weight that way where it's not my personal safety. It's how can I justify what I'm asking my people to do and making sure that I'm doing everything I can to make sure they have a great time and a safe time and just like learning all that they can while they're under me. So it's, it's weird how it's changed, like different fears, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean that that's a huge responsibility. I'm sure when you lead a team into, into the fire, like no, because yeah, like you said, like you might be calm, cool and collected, but you, you know what it was like to be in that person's shoes and trying to calm them down and everything. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe tell everyone what this, uh, you mentioned offline about this grassroots wildland firefighters organization or this foundation. So what is, what is it and, um, how can people get involved if they want or, uh, yeah, just, just kind of like, what, so, what do they do? Yeah. So wildland firefighters as a whole aren't very good advocates for ourselves. We don't like to <laughs> ever be called heroes. We just like to do our jobs and also be have time to hang out with our friends and family and loved ones and just be people when we're not working. So I would say, start with that. And so the grassroots wildland firefighters, um, they've really come together and formed kind of an advocacy group that is helping get better firefighter pay and retention. So right now, the Tim Hart Act is... Um, just been reintroduced by two congressmen out of Colorado. It used to be attached to an infrastructure bill and it did not pass. And so now it's a standalone bill. So there's kind of like a time pressure right now to get that passed. And that really increases firefighter wages to a more livable wage and provides just like real funding. And they have to, there's a bunch of other changes as well, just to help us have more of a work-life balance and just better mental health resources and just kind of um, benefits in that way. So they're really helping get that into the public eye and just promoting that on social media and just getting more people aware of the challenges that wildland firefighters are facing right now. And it's based off of a lot of old fire management officers and hotshot supervisors and people who have been in the business a long time and just truly know like what the challenges are that people are facing, like terrible work-life balance, increased hours, and just having to be on all the time. And it can be like very mentally and physically draining. So huge appreciation to them. Um, yeah, you talked about, you might, or you would put their, um, socials or their website into the link and that's huge. And then the best thing is they're advocating right now is call your Congress people, tell them you support the Tim Hart act, because that's the only way that we're going to get paid a living wage and just be able to, I don't know, keep doing this job that we appreciate and that we love 
while getting um, adequate compensation. So uh, a lot of <laughs> rhetoric in the media right now is, oh, we need to rake the forest, as Trump said, or we need to do better forest management, but they're forgetting that there's actual people who need to implement those, and that's us. That's the wildland firefighters. So we need to make sure we have a permanent pay solution in place just so we can go do all that good work and keep um, doing the work that we do. And then okay. the Wildland Firefighter Foundation is like a true charity. So they raise money so that if a firefighter gets injured on the line and like they want, they need family to fly in, like that's not always stuff that the federal government will do. So they kind of step in just to provide extra aid, especially with traumatic injuries and deaths on the fire line. So there's two different ones, I guess, that are important okay. to, to the profession. Yeah. Sweet. Awesome. The unsung heroes, you know, we, we pay enough in taxes. It should definitely go to people who are putting their lives on the line for sure. So, um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to end it. I always end it on kind of this philosophical note here. It, this is the adventures, less traveled podcast. I try to have people from all different walks of life in because adventure takes many shapes and forms. How do you personally define adventure? Oh man. Should have prepared better for this. Um, <laughs> ad adventure to me is being curious. So being curious to maybe do something outside of your comfort zone or to do something you've always kind of had in the back of my your mind that's just kind of always reminding you, hey, you should do this or hey, like just re I don't know, anything that just ignites that in you, like that interest or that kind of challenge where you just feel called to something. So I don't know. Adventure can take a lot of different forms, but I really like the idea of it just being a following of your curiosity of like, oh, maybe I'll try this hard thing or maybe it's just like a really minor thing um, that is something just like a mental challenge that you have to overcome. So I don't know. I think adventure can truly really take a lot of different forms in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, different for every people. But a common theme I always hear is it's some element of daring, you know, going daringly into the unknown. So. Well, that's more, um, way more eloquent than what I said. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're speaking the same speaking the same lingo. Well, that that's all I had. Um, this is great for anyone freaking out about the Canadian fires. Thankfully, people like Katrina are, uh, you know, keeping this thing under wraps, and hopefully, there's not too much to worry about. So, uh, I thank you for your time. This is great, and uh, hopefully, all of this is still relevant when this gets released. So uh, yeah. <laughs> But, so all right. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it.